Logan, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. So nice to be with you. Second, uh, this is your second time. It is. And I think uh, last time we talked about your first book, which was? That book was called Our Servants, Our Masters, How Control Masquerades as Assistants. And it was about kind of the myth of the public servant and how people who pretend to want to help you actually want to control you. I'm sensing a, a libertarian bent in your writings. Just a little bit, yeah. you know. And you remind everybody, you're, um, you do many, many important things at Free the People. Um, tell, us, tell us what you do. I call myself the head writer at Free the People. I do anything that we do that's scripted, I tend to write. Um, I also record sound, except for today, because I'm here. Um, I record sound. I sometimes do some You're actually music. recording sound while you're yeah, I'm doing multitasking. it, pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, I do some music for some of the stuff we do, and I carry a lot of heavy bags. Pretty and much anything you need me to do, I will do. Yes, and uh, I, I don't know if you just mentioned the music, but you actually compose yeah. music for a lot of our stuff. And, and you're the only person I know that has a degree from the Berkeley School of Music. Correct. And a master's in economics. Yes. Which, which makes for some interesting... I'm a generalist. I'm an all-rounder. Yes. Um, and, and Hayek liked those guys, by the way. Um, but the new book, um, which we're going to talk about today, is Conformer Be Cast Out. The Literal Demonization of Nonconformists. That's correct. Just out this month. Very exciting. So um, this, this seems, um, I mean, in some ways it's an expansion on your general worldview from the last book, but, mm -hmm. but this one seems particularly interesting right now because there's this odd tribal conformity that, that's emerged in American culture where you're either on Team A or Team B, and anybody that's a little bit different is 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 cast out. Um, it was that that was happening when you were thinking about writing this book. Yeah, um, they actually wrote this book before 2020, and it just became oddly prescient the next year when it was going through the publication process. And I wrote it because I just really like kind of weirdos and misfits and nonconformists and people who do interesting things with their lives. I think they're really important people. I think they contribute to progress of civilization because everyone does the same thing all the time. You don't get anywhere. You just keep repeating. Um, and, you know, not everything you can do to be a nonconformist is good. There's some bad versions of that, too. But in general, I like those people. And I feel like they have a hard time. People don't like people who are different. And so I wanted to kind of look into this very specific niche that I'm writing about in this book, which I don't think anyone else has written about, which is the ways in which society has identified those people with some sort of a metaphysical evil, with some, like the devil, you know, which I don't think people really talk about very much. But it's been a common theme running throughout history. You don't see it as much now because people don't believe in the devil as much as they used to. But, uh, you know, it's something that has happened and it's had really tragic consequences for people who stuck out, stuck out too far. So I'm thinking of, uh, of two, two of my favorite economists. Uh, Deirdre, Mikulski, Deirdre McCluskey talks a lot about um, sort of the bottom-up process of, of in, she calls it innovationism. Mm -hmm. But she's talking about entrepreneurship, and, and she thinks that she doesn't like the word capitalism. She likes the word innovation because it better describes uh, the bottom-up revolution of the last several hundred years where uh, just regular people were allowed to deviate from the norm mm -hmm. and 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 create things and 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 she she says that not the accumulation of capital not necessarily all of the uns other institutional structures that we point to that that made for a more prosperous society she's like just people being allowed to think for themselves that's that's the key to everything yeah, and like Ludwig von Mises talks about how entrepreneurs can see around the corner of history, and it's almost this like mystical talent where you can 
you can figure out what people want or what they need before they know it themselves and come up with that. And that's a special gift that most people don't have. And uh, it's important that we have those people, but you know, they often get ridiculed or made fun of or attacked or, or you know, sometimes imprisoned or killed for these kind of views. Yeah, like uh, that's my favorite Mises quote from Human Action, and and the context actually would be maybe he's personalizing something as a liberal in in a society that was was very much uh, careening towards authoritarianism and central control, and 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 as a Jew, he would eventually flee the Nazis and and move to the United States. Um, but the the second half of that quote is. Um, the, the entrepreneur is, is free to move forward even as people laugh at him. Mm-hmm. And that, that reminds me precisely of, of this book, like people, um, people mock people that are different, um, people are afraid of people who are different. And, and you talk a lot about that in the evil individualist chapter. Yes. So um, g- give me an, an example because the, the most successful people that I've ever met are weird. And, and, and weird in the sense that they're particularly good at something that I'm not good at. And, and to me, that's, that's the treasure in that individual which makes them unique. Um, but we're always afraid of it. Yeah, um, you see it in business, you see it a lot in scientific discovery where you have someone who has a new idea that is not popular, that contradicts the established orthodoxy, and I think that's particularly relevant right now. I mean, there's the famous example of Galileo, you know, who came up with the the, um, heliocentric model of the solar system, which was a heresy at the time, and he got in big trouble for that. And you continue to see that, and sometimes it's not to the extremes that they put Galileo, where they actually, like, threaten to imprison him over it. But uh, you see people who get ridiculed and you see people who are uh, sometimes diagnosed with illnesses. There's a whole bunch in there a little bit about uh, like Newton and a few other philosophers who people thought they were so abnormal in their thinking that they must have a disease. They must have a condition and uh, wanted to kind of put them in that little box and say there's something wrong with this person because they think so differently from how everyone else thinks. So so you, you talk a lot about the sort of the, the rational reasons why why centuries ago people would would be ostracized for being different mm-hmm. Talk, it's it's a brutal story but it's it's a reality to tell that yeah so I think to understand this phenomenon we have to kind of go back to tribal society and I think it's evolutionarily understandable that nonconformist would be unpopular because if you're living in a tribe of like a couple dozen people and you're out in the wilderness and where life is nasty, brutish and short and you're trying to survive against the elements, you need everybody to be on the same team. And if you have someone who's not pulling their weight because they're off doing something crazy, that's a threat to the society. And you can see why that would be discouraged from an evolutionary standpoint. But when you expand society out to the point where it is now and you have millions of people, what I do doesn't really affect you. I can, you know, do anything I want and it's not really going to have any effect on you. So there's no rational reason for us to be against nonconformists. But I think we have this kind of evolutionary holdover. It's this instinctual thing that is um, comes from our ancestral history about why we're just naturally suspicious and hostile to people who want to do things differently. Um, yeah, I, I just reread the, the story about changelings, which which is a which which is an awful story about about the rationale for for people killing their babies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people would have a baby that was maybe a little sickly or weak or deformed or weird looking, and they decided they didn't want it for whatever reason. And in order to justify that to themselves, they would make up a story about how the baby was exchanged with a fairy or with some kind of a goblin or something, and it's not really their baby. So they're allowed to drown it in the river. 
to get rid of it. And yeah, it's, people can justify horrible things. And it's this whole concept of scapegoating where you basically pile the sins of the individuals onto some person or something, some animal, and you use that to try to drive out all the evil in the in the society. But it's it's very unfair to the person being scapegoated. Yeah, and 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 to me, like you know, I'm I'm, I'm a libertarian, and I believe in a um, liberal, open society um, because that, to me, is the only way to sort of transcend some of that that brutal tribalism that 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 must be part of human nature that there is a way that all of us with all of our differences um, actually learn to benefit from those differences, but it has to be, it can't be one size fits all because no. that the temptation there is to eliminate anybody that doesn't fit the model. Yeah, and I find it very concerning with, as, with respect to mental health these days because they've expanded the diagnostic and statistical manual so much that psychiatrists use to classify diseases or conditions or disorders or whatever you want to call them. And they basically labeled any divergent behavior as some kind of a disorder that needs to be treated or medicated. Um, and it's it's bad. It's like really scary to me because instead of just accepting that we're different and we have different strengths and different weaknesses, we have to say that person doesn't fit in the box. Therefore, he's got a disorder. Therefore, we have to give him these you know drugs that will turn him into a zombie. And it's it's you know we're not really at the point anymore where we're uh, hospitalizing too many people for, over this. We used to like in the seventies it was really bad. We'd institutionalize people because they didn't fit in. Like one of my favorite data points that I think is shocking that no one really knows about is that homosexuality was considered a mental disorder until nineteen eighty seven. It wasn't removed from the manual until nineteen eighty seven. And you could be involuntarily treated for it. You could be drugged or you could be given therapy or you could be even in, even hospitalized for it. Because society or the, the profession of psychiatry thought that it was some kind of a disorder and uh, therefore justified, you know, coercion. And it's terrifying. And we've gotten a lot better about that. But I think we've gotten worse in the sense that we're trying to identify more and more um, patterns of behavior as somehow aberrant and, you know, a, a symptom of a disease. Who was the the iconic mathematician that, that the British government chemically neutered? Do you remember Oh, um, yeah. Uh, oh, what was his name? Turing. Yeah, Turing. Turing. Yeah, Turing, yeah. I yeah. was thinking of John Nash because we were talking about mental illness and he had the schizophrenia. But yeah, yeah Turing was, was gay and was chemically neutered for that, yeah. And then he killed himself because yes. they, they destroyed his life. Yes. Um, so, so not a good thing. No, not a good thing at all. And yeah. really terrifying, I think. And yeah. Particularly now where we're witnessing this kind of medical coercion you're seeing where people are being forced to take medicines that they may not want. And if you don't do it, you're not only denied the privileges of society, you're also labeled as a bad person. Like you're you're a sinner, you're a heretic if you don't do this thing that everyone wants you to do. Yeah. That's really scary. And like we're going down a path where medical coercion could be on the rise again when I really think we should be going the opposite direction. Yeah, it, it clearly with um, with uh, vaccine mandates under COVID, uh, they're clearly setting up a paradigm under which um, somebody in Washington, D.C. will decide what the standard treatment is for, you know, God knows it's a blank check, right? It, right. It, it, it's viruses today, but it could be all sorts of things tomorrow. And I'm, I'm sort of banging my head against the wall trying to get people to realize how dangerous and how evil and how outrageous this is. But a lot of people just seem to be conforming. It all stems from collectivist thinking. You know, it's all about what's good for the society, what's good for the group, not what's good for the individual. And they are able to rationalize it by saying, well, we need you to do this to protect everybody else, even though the, the science doesn't really back that up at all. 
um, that's what they're that's how they're selling it to people, and they that's how they can say you're a bad person if you don't do it because you're not looking out for your neighbors, you're not looking out for your coworkers, and we never used to do that. That's a new idea. You know, we used to think that your health is your business, and now we're you know making your health everybody's business, which is really bad. Yeah, I mean it's part of part of that centralization, and you know those of us that opposed um, expansion of government involvement in healthcare were always ridiculed for warning that if you centralize everything, that gives uh, bureaucrats and, and maybe uh, democracy itself a chance to decide whether or not you're worthy enough to uh, receive certain treatments, mm-hmm. or, and, and now conversely, whether or not you'll be required to fall in line and, and, and take certain treatments. Um, it should be offensive across the political spectrum, but right now it, it seems more coming from the left they like that coercion without perhaps thinking about where this is leading to. Even if you kind of buy into the argument, you should be skeptical of it because governments make mistakes and have made mistakes in the past with these sort of things. Like I always think of the, uh, this is not well known, but this whole, when, when radium was discovered, it was considered this kind of novelty glow in the dark, you know, substance that you could use to give people energy and pep. It's like, it's got energy in it. You better take it. It'll give you good energy. And everybody took radium and like, Thousands of people died of uh, irradiation, radiation poisoning, really bad. And then you had things like thalidomide, where all these pregnant mothers were given this drug that gave them horrible birth defects. And, you know, when the government mandates that for everybody across the board, it's a chance that they're wrong. And if they're wrong, it's wrong for everybody. And you have these massive casualties coming along with it. Whereas if you let everybody make their own decision, some people are going to do it, some people aren't. You kind of mitigate the risk. You spread the risk out among lots of different people. And some people will have bad consequences and some people won't. Yeah, I just read a story about, and I hadn't heard this story before, and I, I hope it's true since I'm about to repeat it. It, it was you get flagged with misinformation on yeah. Facebook if you're not careful. Um, so, so George Washington ultimately died. He was sick, and the um, standard treatment at the time was to bloodlet him. Yeah, and they bled him to death. I don't know if you've ever heard that story. Yeah, there's a lot of stories about mercury as well, because mercury used to be this kind of panacea that they would prescribe for everything, and they would inject mercury into your eyes and things like that, (laughs) really horrible stuff, and then you die from mercury poisoning because that's what happens. Um, So, yeah, like the medical science has gotten it wrong before, and this idea we should just shut up and listen to the experts and, and trust them. Like, well, people trusted them about mercury, and it didn't work out so well. Why are we so sure that they're that much smarter now than they were back then? Yeah, and I'm, I'm obviously a big fan of Right to Try, and I think, um, I think every individual and every family in consultation with the doctor of their choosing should figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And different people have different risk preferences. Um, if you happen to be a terminal cancer patient, your, your, your risk is pretty high if you, you think there's a potential to get a cure. Yes, but, but the opponents of right to try, um, um, I'm thinking specifically of Senate Democrats, would, would go down to the Senate floor during this debate a couple years ago um, and say to terminally ill patients, you can't try this because it might kill you. Right. And that's, that was the logic of their thing. But it's all, about, it's all about centralization. Like, how could any U.S. senator know what your best decisions are? And again, I thought that was, I thought that was sort of baked into the American ethos i've always sort of joked that americans are genetically predisposed towards towards liberty and freedom and individuality Um, and you write about that a little bit like you know people americans sort of have that instinct in large part because they self-selected to be here going all the way back to colonial days 
Yeah, I talk about some of the early kind of uh, 19th century individualist anarchists in this book who I find really fascinating. People like uh, Lysander Spooner or Benjamin Tucker who were, you know, really weird guys. And they thought, you know, they didn't even like the, the conformity of being part of a country, basically. They wanted to be so individualistic that they didn't even want to do that. And, you know, they were given a really hard time as well. Like they were tried to, the government sued Lysander Spooner for trying to set up a post office. And uh, people thought they were crazy. You got to stop uh, that. You can't let it's anybody dangerous. deliver mail except yeah. for the USPS. Terrible. And uh, there's a really interesting story in there about the American spiritualist movement, which I find really fascinating. I just learned this a couple of years ago. And there were all these people doing like seances and tr table turning and things like that. But it was really um, kind of a, a substitute for a women's rights movement. You know, all these women who were saying, you know, we're, we have the power in this movement because we're the ones who are communicating with the dead. And uh, they wanted to use it as a way to further women's rights. And, you know, that's a, a good example of the, the kind of literalism in my book where they talk about these people must be in league with the devil because they're doing this raising the dead thing, this necromancy thing. Um, but really, they were just fighting for equal political equality. And it's a, kind of an interesting movement, which I didn't realize those two things were tied together. Um, talk about Thomas Sass, who yeah. you, you're a big fan and you, you quote him quite a bit. Yeah, he's an amazing, um, he was a psychiatrist. He died a few years ago and he was from Hungary, but he came to America and he's a libertarian psychiatrist and he was the chief opponent of involuntary uh, institutionalization for mental patients and the inhumane treatment of mental patients. So he wrote these wonderful books about how people should be not treated as if not treated with coercion. They should be treated like people and they should be respected. And uh, it was very radical. And he is, you know, still reviled in a lot of psychiatric circles because he went against the orthodoxy and he spoke out against things like lobotomies and, um, you know, uh, insulin shock therapy and electroshock therapy, all these things that I consider pretty barbaric treatments of the mentally ill. And he said that's all wrong and we should treat them like people. And he, he talks about he draws has a book where he draws an analogy between the psychiatric movement and the Inquisition about how basically if you have these aberrant behaviors because um, you know he talks about mental illness as a set of behaviors but it basically if you have these behaviors that don't conform to what society expects of you you're committing a heresy and then they will use that to persecute you and there's no way to talk yourself out of it once society has labeled you as mentally ill or as a heretic anything you say is further proof that that's true and there's no way to get out of it and so i think that analogy is really interesting about how We've gotten rid of the witch hunts, but now we, our new witch hunts are, are hunting down people who don't behave as they are expected to behave. And then we label them as, with diseases and we forcibly drug them and we institutionalize them and do terrible things to them, deprive them of their individual rights. You know, it, it strikes me, I hadn't thought about this before, but, but I, I applied this, this sort of framework to all sorts of, of horrible uh, public policy deviations that we have. Um, but it strikes me that the, the mental health industry um, could be characterized as having this 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 very aggressive, wrong-headed approach to mental health treatment. That so a bad idea combined with the financial incentives to sort of pursue um, aggressive treatments, including institutionalization and lots and lots of pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah, is that is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah, I think so completely. And it's it's particularly troubling when you see the way children are treated because they don't really have a choice. You know, they're being uh, drugged for things that are being classified as diseases and who knows if they really are or not. But 
there's we're telling their parents you your child's not willing to sit in the classroom all day and stare at a blackboard therefore we have to give him this cocktail of drugs and it really scares me that they were doing that to kids because i think you know if an adult wants to do that they they have a chance of opting out but kids don't have the opportunity to opt out of that sort of thing and i think it's really frightening yeah i was a bad student we've talked about this many times and and you were um unschooled correct I, I can't imagine today, I think I'm, I surely would have been drugged because I, I didn't want to do the things I was told to do. I feel sure that I would have been drugged if I had been in public school. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I can't imagine like that, that, that destroys specifically the people we're talking about, the people that are a little bit weird, um, you know, too energetic, too smart, too this, too that, too creative. Right. Um, and and this, this, this industry seems to be um, destroying that in people. There's a, a quote in there, which I can't remember the quote verbatim, but there's a, a line from one of John Holt's books. And John Holt is one of the uh, the founders of the unschooling movement, really great educational writer. And he talks about how people are suspicious of bright children, like uh, prodigies, people who are a little bit too ahead of the game. People are hostile towards them, and they don't like children who don't behave as children are expected to behave. They show up a little bit too, too much maturity too early or too much intelligence too early. And there's there's some kind of baked-in hostility towards those people, and I'm not really sure why. I think maybe there's a, an envy component to it. People feel like they feel less secure about themselves because a child is showing them up or something. But, yeah, there's a real societal hostility towards kids who are not fitting in that box. Yeah, and and to go back to one, one of the central themes in your book is is sort of finding – mystical or religious frames to explain away people that were different you know yeah. they're, they're possessed they're demonized um tell, tell us tell a story about about that stuff i think um there's this myth of uh dr faust who is it's a very well-known german myth that was written up by goethe and it's he's someone who kind of sold his soul to the devil for knowledge for arcane knowledge. And we, we keep seeing that myth kind of repeated in popular culture over and over again. And what I think it's really interesting is in terms of people of exceptional uh, creative ability. People like, And I give a couple of examples of music musicians who were so far above their contemporaries in terms of skill that people could only understand it or explain it by saying, well, they must have gone to the crossroads and sold their soul to the devil in exchange for their ability. And the, the kind of classical example is uh, Niccolo Paganini, the Italian violinist who completely revolutionized violin technique and did things that no one thought were possible on the violin. And he was, you know, he kind of played up to it, which I, it's something I want to mention in a second. But he kind of played into this idea that um, he was, you know, a little bit possessed by something. He had some kind of supernatural talent. But people were afraid of him. And, you know, you saw it uh, coming into the 20th century. You saw it with people like Robert Johnson, who was this great blues guitarist. And everyone, no one could understand how he was so good. Um, so they said, well, he must be doing something supernatural. He must have sold his soul. And I think people just are having a hard time understanding how people can be so different and so good. And they're trying to understand it through that lens. But it, it creates problems. And one of the things that happens when you do this to people is they kind of lean into it. And they think, well, if you're going to say that I'm evil then I might as well just be evil. And I think we're seeing a manifestation of this now. Like we had things like the Hellfire Club back in the 19th century where people were different and they're like, you know what, we'll just, we'll go with it. We'll just say, if you want to call us Satanists for doing what we're doing, we'll just call ourselves Satanists. And um, now I think we're seeing that with movements like the alt-right where they're so tired of being called racists that they're just like, okay, if you're going to call me a racist no matter what I do, I guess I'll just be racist. And I think that's really dangerous. And it's what happens when you repeatedly you know, put these labels on people on a society-wide basis. You just get some bad behavior out of it. You know, like the when um, the left calls everyone a racist and everyone a fascist, you know, my line is you're actually letting 
real fascists and real racists off the hook because mm. if everybody is, nobody is. Yeah. And it, 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 it creates all sorts of, of toxic, hopefully unintended consequences. Um, one, of your, one of your big obsessions that you talk about in this book, and we've talked about it and, and we want to do more on it, but the eugenics movement is a place where this, this mythology and demonization is given the patina of science. Like yes. the, the science was settled and the eugenicists were the future. Um, for people that don't know, give us a sense for just how evil that idea was. Yeah, this is something that I think is really interesting because it's not really talked about very much in history books or, you know, I don't think it's taught in schools. And there was this movement about 100 years ago, the early 20th century, like 1917, right around the time of World War One, where people were kind of taking the ideas that were um, spread by Darwin and Gregor Mendel and people like that about natural selection and about evolution. And they think, well, we can maybe we can apply these consciously in a scientific way to improve the race. And we can improve the race by encouraging people that we think are good specimens to breed and discouraging people that we think are bad specimens from breeding. And then we can, over generations, make a, a superhuman type of person. And so there was this movement across America. And like Woodrow Wilson was a eugenicist president. He was elected on that platform. And uh, tens of thousands of Americans were forcibly sterilized against their will and often without their knowledge. They would tell them, like, you have to come get your vitamins. And instead of giving them vitamins, they would, you know, give them a sterilization. Um, and they did it because they were poor and they did it because they were uneducated and they did it because they were criminals. They did it for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they were, had you know, mental defects or they had mutations or they had uh, physical deformities or something. And they just decided these people or, shouldn't be allowed to or breed. Or just the wrong color skin. Or just the wrong color skin. They said these people shouldn't be allowed to breed. We're going to take it away from them. They're like most basic human right, the ability to reproduce. We're going to take that away from these people against their will. Um, because we want to improve the race and it's a scientific thing and it was like a big major political party in the united states and we only stopped doing it when we got involved in world war ii when we saw the nazis doing it and it made it gave everybody a bad taste in their mouth for eugenics they're like we don't want to be like those guys yeah but if, if we hadn't done that we might still be doing it who knows right. yeah i'm not talking about those guys that's yeah. that's a little bit too far it's it's but right. it, you know the, the 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 patina of science it's it's basically the same logic as drowning your child in the river, mm -hmm. but they wrapped it around science to make it to make it less repugnant, perhaps, and and quite popular at the time. Obviously, if 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 Wilson w was elected on that platform, um, I've been obsessing a lot about scientism in the context of the debate about the last two years, and, yeah. and thinking about eugenics and thinking about forced sterilization, and why it is that African Americans particularly might be skeptical of a government that says you must do this medical procedure. Yeah. They, they have reasons to be skeptical. They have very good reasons to be skeptical. The government has not treated them well in the past. Um, I think, you know, one of the themes in my book is this, this idea of this religious uh, hostility towards people who are different. And I think now we're seeing less, there's less power for the church in America. We're a little bit more of a secular society than we used to be. So you don't see that so much, but I think it's been replaced by the secular religion of scientism, where we say, these are our priests, these are our, that's our Pope. Dr. Fauci's our Pope. And whatever he says goes, he is the science. And you can't question it. If you can't do your own research, you can't, you know, listen to minority voices. You just have to go with whatever the consensus is. And anything else is heresy that has to be punished. And so I, while I don't see as much kind of religious uh, coercion going on in America anyway, it still happens in other countries, uh, we definitely are seeing the scientific coercion that's kind of dressed up in the same garb as religion used to be. Whereas you, you can't question the authorities. You have to just do what they say. 
Yeah, it's like, I don't know exactly what to call it, it because it, it's an elitism that reminds me of, of the same culture of, of the original progressives who eugenics was very much part of that logic. And, and it was always about, um, there are certain people that are smarter than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. They went to the right schools, they have the right training, and we should give them to power the power to rationally reorganize things and, and kind of force us to do things that we wouldn't do on and our And there's own. an irony there because those people themselves are nonconformist and that they stand kind of above the rest of the pack, or at least they place themselves above the rest of the pack and yeah. say, I'm special. But instead of being demonized, they are exalted. Yeah. So I'm thinking of, and, and you, know, you know this research project I did, I, I dove into Hayek's counter-revolution of science where he spends a lot of time um, uh, lambasting um, this this French aristocrat Henry de Saint Simon. Yeah, and Saint Simon was the founder of supposedly the founding father of socialism. One of his students coined the term just a few weeks after he died, and and he was obsessed with actually turning science into a religion. He wanted to create the the. Uh, the Council of Newton and, and build temples right. to Sir Isaac Newton. It's this platonic idea, right? Because yeah. that's what Plato wanted to do in the republics. He wanted to have philosopher kings and who would be above everyone else and tell everybody else what to do and centralize society and run it along philosophical or scientific principles. It's an old idea. And like I've been reading uh, Karl Popper's uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And the first half of that is devoted to trying to debunk Plato because Plato's ideas are what led to all of this socialism and all this centralization. And they continue to be very influential today. And I think people who haven't really let, read Plato um, kind of praise him and exalt him and say, oh, yeah, he was a great Greek philosopher without really knowing what he, what he taught. But what he taught is pretty heinous stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it, it gets to this um, idea that, first of all, you, you, you eliminate all of these creators that we're talking about, all the oddballs, all the disruptors, everybody that, that comes up with a different idea that turns out to be transformational. Um, in health or in, in production or whatever it is, in music. Um, those people are eliminated, but they're also replaced with, um, I mean, uh, the people that rise in bureaucratic structures are exceptional, but they're exceptional at politicking, mm -hmm. um, which means that, let's, let's just mention Fauci here. The guy's been a bureaucrat since he got out of medical school. Yeah, I think there's a real failure in, a, like a critical failure in, in the way politics works is that the people who rise to the top are not the people who are good leaders. They're not the people who are good, you know, scientists. They're not the people who are good at governing. They're the people who are good at campaigning. You know, there are people who are good at selling themselves. And that's a different skill set. You know, being good at governing a country and being good at running a presidential campaign are not the same skill set. They're completely different. But one of those people gets to be president and the other one doesn't. Yeah. And that, that would be like, so So Plato certainly didn't contemplate um, public choice theory and, no. and what Hayek talks about in The Road to Serfdom, that the natural tendency of bad people to rise to the top of the pile. Um, but, but more fundamentally, like those, even if you could take the smartest guy and not, not, not Fauci, who's a consummate bureaucrat, but let's go find the smartest epidemiologist. The idea that you could give that guy all the power to make decisions for the rest of us is is equally dangerous and evil 
because that guy doesn't know nearly as much as he he thinks he does. That's the whole basis of real science is you you don't know that much. Yeah, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. You you think you know more than you know, and it it causes problems because, as you know, as you well know, the individual life circumstances of 350 million people are not something that can be known by one or 10 or 100 or 1,000 bureaucrats, no matter how smart those guys are. Yeah. So... um, Let's let's try to find a silver lining in this because you're, you're celebrating um, the weirdos in society. And I, I happen to think that almost every American's a weirdo. And yeah. I say that um, in the most endearing way possible. In one way or another, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking of, of one of my favorite guys, Conformer Be Cast Out. Where'd you get that title from? Oh, it comes from a Rush song, as I think you know. It's from the song um, uh, Subdivisions off yeah. their Signals album. And it's a great kind of ode to the misfit uh, teenager who's kind of trapped in this this cookie cutter neighborhood in suburbia, trying to find their individual voice. I think I was uh, 19 or 20 when that album came out, and it was it was totally my anthem as as an awkward um, boy trying to trying to fit in somehow. Um, but the uh, I don't even know what I was going to say about that. It's a good song. People should listen to it. Yeah, listen to the song. It's possible we all drank too much last night. It's entirely possible. It's that possible. Comment, yeah. <laughs> you think it just you ended, like ended just there? Just ended there. No, but I had I had something interesting to say, and and now I don't know what it was. Oh, so uh, trying to find a silver lining. That's where we're going right. with this. And then I started talking about Neil Peart and Rush, which I won't bore people with again. But, um, you know, words like entrepreneur and innovate, mm-hmm. um, to me, that's the essence of what a lot of people call free market capitalism. I, I like I prefer to call it like the market process and yeah. the process of people figuring stuff out. And I can't figure out exactly how to describe that because I don't think capitalism as a word does it justice. It's not a good word. But you know, people, uh, the same young people that probably hate the word capitalism, they love innovation. They love entrepreneurship. They they love to be free to deviate from the norm. I feel like that's that's the basis by which we might connect with the next generation who who are trying to figure out, you know, am I on this team or this team? And 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 our proposal is you, you don't actually have to join a team. Yeah, it's interesting because I know so many people who are like rabidly anti-capitalist, but they're so unique. They're such unique individuals and they love to be different. and They love to have their own way of doing things. And they regard capitalism as something that forces you into a cubicle or a nine-to-five job your whole life, and there's no room to be different. And I think it's a, a very deep misunderstanding of what that process looks like. And one of the things I'm trying to do with my writing is kind of show people, like, there's this, there's a connection there. There's a sympathy there where if you want to be different and you want to do your own thing, you need to be allowed to have freedom to do that. You need to be allowed to have economic freedom to do that. You need to be allowed to have personal freedom to do that. You can't do it in a society that demands everybody conform, which is what they're basically asking for with the socialist economy. And I don't think they have connected the dots there. And I'm trying to help people connect the dots and seeing that if you really want to live your life for yourself the way you want to live it without other people interfering, you have to have a free market system. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Yeah. And and I think a lot about the word dignity. And AOC talks about it all the time. Um, I was having a conversation with Jeffrey Tucker about dignity last night. And because that's how he's trying to frame it. And I think it makes a lot of sense. The The dignity that you will get in life is something that has to be based on your abilities and your aspirations, and also you're willing to just go do it. 
And that only happens in a decentralized bottom-up society where where um, weirdos aren't demonized. Right. So um, there's that. <laughs> Hopefully that'll turn out good for us. We'll see. It's yeah. been a rough couple of years, but, you know, maybe uh, maybe we're turning a corner. So I, I, I do think, and you've heard this too, I, I think this is the opportunity for the counter-revolution, this this centralization, and it, it could be speech, it could be COVID protocols. Um, there seems to be this demand that everybody fall in line in, in ways that is, that is fundamentally un-American. And I think the peaceful counter-revolution is going to be going to be celebrating a lot of the themes that I see in your book. Yeah, I hope so. So, so you feel, I mean, do you feel like people should buy this book? I would like it for people to buy this book. I think it would be great if they did. It's on Amazon. It's on barnesandnoble.com. It's on whatever, wherever you buy books from. You can get a copy, Conform or Be Cast Out, The Literal Demonization of Nonconformists. It's, uh, I think it's a, a really interesting read. It's something that hasn't been written about before, to my knowledge. It's kind of taking a unique angle on things that I think is something that is interesting and that people haven't talked about. So if you're interested in being a nonconformist and you're interested in living your own life and learning about other peculiar people like you, I think it's a good read. We'll close it there. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yay. Only two brain meltdowns. <laughs> I think the belt meltdowns are fun. So yeah. there's that. <laughs> That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? That's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm -hmm.